An Air Algerie flight is on its way to Algiers when the plane disappears from radar about an hour after takeoff. What caused this flight to fall from the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. We're dealing, we're dealing with pure chaos. <laughs> it's been it's been a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Thanks to Paige, our friend Paige, becoming a patron. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Paige. Also, we realized way late that you guys submitted all of the stories in the last week. Yeah, you did. And so Thank you for that. we will do a listener episode eventually. Thank you for submitting stories. Panic panic <laughs> I don't. this month's listener stories are pranks other announcements there's new items on the merch store i know because i got some of them for me because i'm selfish there is a really cool bento box and i want it in other news so as you may or may not be aware we are taking a rather lengthy vacation come june so you'll still have a normally scheduled episode, but they're going to be a little different than our normal episodes. Correct. Yes. We are recording one tomorrow, and basically we're taking two of our planned minisodes and making them into an episode. So there's that. And that will happen for three consecutive weeks. Four. Four. Four consecutive, Four consecutive weeks. weeks. That way we have that last week of June to recuperate and figure out. And we can actually have a vacation. Yes. Yeah. Get our life back together once we get back. And not worry about all the extra stuff we have to do. Yes. So. For our patrons, we apologize in advance, but you will not be getting a post episode for any of those episodes. Sorry. Just so you're aware. Yeah. I, the, those four weeks, you will not get a we are trying episode. We are trying our hardest, but we also have like full-time jobs and things we have to do between now and going on this trip. And it's 2 months away. So Right. So we are in just full panic mode kind of. <laughs> if any of you done. are truly truly upset and want a refund, contact us. We'll give you a partial refund. We'll do it in June, but Yeah. Of those of you who actually listen to the post episode, I'm sure we'll be okay, but just let us know. In other news, what are we covering today? <laughs> <laughs> like, what other news? What other news did I miss? <laughs> Nothing. Today, we are covering Air Algerie, flight 5017. 5017. Thank you to our listener, patron? Listener. listener. Alan! 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 Alan likes to make Miranda mad. So, you've been warned. I make Anytime you hear his name, you should just take it as a warning <laughs> that this is what's going to happen. We haven't done one of his recommendations in a while, so... Kind of exciting. This is a good one. I I wouldn't say that I got mad at it, but I can see where Miranda might. So obviously we've covered this airline very recently, but this is a very different situation. This occurred on July 24th of 2014. So relatively recent. Yes, relatively recent. Right after we graduated high school. Yep. This was a McDonnell Douglas MD-83, which is kind of new for us. Kind of. Kind of. Get into why. This is technically the larger version of the DC-9. It was originally called the DC-9-83. It's the 83 variant of the DC-9. It was larger engines than the variants of the DC-9 previously. The MD-83 is one of the MD-80 variants. This one had the tail number Echo Charlie-Lima Tango Victor. We'll talk about why that's important in a minute, because that tail number actually means something in this case. This MD-80, be it that it's like a DC-9, has two engines all the way at the rear of the airplane, a T-tail, and very aft-mounted wings for 
the airplane. This was a flight from Are You Ready? Oh, I am gonna oh God. butcher this. I am not gonna be able to contain my so laughter. Oh, bad. Ouagadougou. That is the city they are departing out of from Burkina Faso, the country of Burkina Faso. Ouagadougou. Ouagadougou. <laughs> You see, I don't think that's correct either, but maybe in the country of Burkina Faso, which to be fair, that is like a country that nobody knows. At all. I'd never heard of it. Right. I, I know it's flag because I used to do this flag geography quiz mm-hmm. on Facebook what, back when Facebook games were cool. Yes. In case you're wondering, it's red and green with a star in the middle. In terms of Africa, it's a smaller country, but it's not that small in actuality. And the flight was to carry on to Algeria in Algeria. So, or Algiers if that's how you want to go about it. The captain for the flight was Augustine Cameron Moggio. He was 47 years old. He had 12,988 hours total, so a lot, of which 10,007 hours were on the MD-80. That's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> on one airplane, that's a lot. Yep. The first officer was Isabel Gost Kaimari. She's 42 years old. She had 7,016 hours total, of which 6,180 hours were on the MD-80, so also very experienced on the MD-80. Yeah. Both of them have almost all of their hours on the MD-80. Like, that is, that's crazy. Does Air Algerie still fly their MD-80s? Let's talk about that for just a second, because this MD-80 is very particular. The crew, you might have noticed, had very particular names. Because they were all Spanish, as were all the crews on the plane. All of the cabin crew and everything. Oh. As the flight was being operated by Swift Air. The tail number of this airplane is Spanish, because Swift Air is a Spanish operator. So they are operating this flight for Air Algerie. We've seen this situation a few times before. Yeah, and I don't like it. Now, this is still very common. We should be clear, like, this happens around the world on a daily basis by the thousands. However, there are cases where that is not a good thing. Many times it can go without a hitch, but... Not this time. No. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. That's right. At the departure airport, because I'm not going to repronounce that, there were 110 (laughs) passengers that boarded the flight adding to the six crew on board, two flight crew, four cabin crew. The passengers included 53 French citizens, of which 33 were French soldiers serving in the region at the time. At 1.02 a.m., the flight was cleared to start the engines. Wow, that's early. Yeah, or late. Oh, (laughs) depends, I guess. These people were probably up late. Yeah. I can imagine they got up early. 1.10 a.m. and 14 seconds, the air traffic controller gave the flight instructions to taxi to runway 22. The crew acknowledged and then requested a change of planned cruising altitude to flight level 330. What was their previous cruising altitude? They then changed their mind and requested flight level 310, as the weight and balance would not be ideal for flight level 330 for the plane. So they did all of this while they were taxiing, planning to depart. I mean, it was a good decision. Yes. 1.13 a.m. and 5 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to perform the EPEPO, or EPEPO, Departure with a right turn after takeoff and to climb to flight level 310, as they had now re-requested. Re-requested. Yes. Yes. The flight departed the airport at 1.15 a.m. They activated the auto throttle on takeoff, which not totally abnormal for some operations where they literally use the auto throttle for takeoff thrust. Yeah. The Airbus actually automatically, most Airbuses automatically activate the auto throttle as soon as you put it into takeoff thrust. Hmm. So not totally abnormal. This was manually done, but still a thing. The flight crew performed the right turn to a heading of 023 degrees after takeoff. As they crossed 10,500 feet, they activated the autopilot. Nine minutes after takeoff, at around 1.24 a.m., the flight reported crossing through 14,500 feet. 
They also reported that they expected to cross Epepo, E-P-E-P-O, at around 1.28 a.m. And their destination of Algier, they should arrive at 5.06 a.m. Local times. Yay for red eyes. Yep. 1.28 a.m. in nine seconds, as the flight was climbing through flight level 215, or 21,500 feet, the flight was transferred air traffic control frequencies. Now they're talking to a center controller. Upon initial contact with the new frequency, the flight crew informed the air traffic controller that they were turning left to 356 degrees to avoid some weather. While climbing, the flight had made three relatively small left turns before turning back to the right to 019 degrees. So all of this is kind of within a certain range... Of north-ish. Of north-ish, yes. 1.37 a.m. and 28 seconds, the flight leveled off at flight level 310 and a speed of Mach 0.74. Now, we never talk about Mach, so I kind of wanted to bring it up since they did in the report. A lot. Yes. Yes, they did. But this is actually, it's surprising to me that we don't talk about it more because once you get above flight level 180, most of the time, once you're above a certain speed, the airplane automatically switches into Mach on most commercial airliners. So Interesting. I didn't even know that. Yes, most pilots are used to working in Mach speeds. I mean, they have knots on their speed indicator. Can you define Mach for those who are yes, so unfamiliar? Mach at Mach 1 is the speed of sound. Yeah. You've probably heard of airplanes crossing the sound barrier. That means they have crossed past Mach 1. So we talk about that. As, like, that is the unit. One Mach is the speed of sound. So, which is 767 miles per hour for those that need it. When we talk about Mach, part of the reason for that is because it creates a more consistent form of speed indication for airplanes traveling in a Gulf Stream and in high-speed situations. Knots, yes, are more accurate, per se, but you get any amount of wind and the fluctuation is going to be large. So this basically creates a more honed, very usable speed to follow when you're traveling at high altitudes at high speeds where winds can change your speed a lot and very often. So they were going at Mach 0.74 when they reached their cruising altitude. So obviously about three quarters the speed of Mach 1. The speed increased shortly thereafter to Mach 0.775. At 1.39 a.m. and 36 seconds, just over two minutes later, the airspeed began decreasing slightly. 1.41 a.m. and 38 seconds, and 1.44 a.m. and 29 seconds, the flight tried to contact another air traffic control frequency called NIAME, but they were unable. Is that how that's pronounced? I don't know. NIAME? Okay. Something like that. Another flight in the area offered to be the intermediary for the communication between the air traffic controller and the flight, since obviously they weren't able to talk to one another. However... They never actually specified if that communication was ever used, like that other flight was actually able to talk to both and was used. And when we say that ATC was having a hard time communicating with the flight, the flight had sent eight different transmissions and only two of them were actually received. Yeah. How? I have no idea. Unless, I guess someone was talking over them, but wouldn't there be like a stat, a, a tone to make sure they know that they're talking over That's, well, that's part of it. More what's happening is literally they're not hearing anything at all. Are they not in range? That's part of it. My thinking is that they must have been on the edge of the range of radio so communication. So it goes in and out. Okay. Right. That or the terrain's blocking radio communication. Who knows? I mean, something something's causing them not to get certain calls. Right. There's not a whole lot more to go into there anyways. The flight then announced that they were at flight level 310 on a different course than planned to avoid weather. 
The air traffic controller did hear that transmission and acknowledged and requested that the flight change their transponder squat code to 3235. So on their transponder, literally, like, that's just the information that tells them, okay, this is that airplane. I've now assigned you a number. I know what that number is, and I know who you are. And there's certain things that come with different numbers, like there's certain pieces of information. We've talked about this in the past, but basically assign them a number. The air traffic controller also requested that the flight report when they are over waypoint GAO, or G-A-O, and to give an estimated crossing time of the waypoint MOCAT, or M-O-K-A-T. Mysteriously, the flight did not acknowledge any of these calls or change their squat code. Not entirely mysteriously, since obviously they were having communication problems. Yeah. But also... So they also can't hear anything from ATC? Right. It's a back and forth. Okay. Something's not working. It's not just them trying to get to ATC and ATC's not getting it. Both sides are getting it. Both ways. Okay. Yes. Over the next 20 seconds, the airplane had a very small oscillation to the left and right. Then at 1.45 a.m. and 2 seconds, the auto throttle was disengaged for 4 seconds. Meanwhile, the airplane had lost a fair chunk of speed, decreasing to an indicated airspeed of 203 knots, or Mach 0.561. The airplane had also begun pitching upward slightly as the airplane actually began descending. Suddenly, the engines rolled back nearly to idle as the airplane continued to oscillate back and forth to the left and right, and then the speed decreased some more. The stall warning began sounding in the cockpit, along with the stick shaker. At 1.45 a.m. and 35 seconds, the autopilot disengaged as they had fallen about 1,150 feet from their cruising altitude. The speed had reduced to 162 knots indicated, or Mach 0.439, which in their configuration for cruise is definitely a stall. And the aircraft's angle of attack was now 25 degrees nose up. Now, now, we're talking angle of attack. So, remember how angle of attack works. That is not their nose up from the the horizon. Yeah. That's their nose up from the direction of travel. Right. And right now they're descending. Right. They're descending. So the airplane might actually be relatively level, but their angle to the direction of travel is actually 25 degrees separated. So they're traveling downward, but the nose is pitched up from that 25 degrees. I'll get more into it later. And at this point, how high are they? Uh, They're still near their cruising altitude at this moment. Oh, okay. So they have time to recover is my question. Yes, a little below. The nose pitch then decreased as the airplane rolled to the left, but not just a little bit this time. This time the airplane pitched 80 degrees nose down and rolled 140 degrees to the left. So, yeah, they're inverted and also pointing straight down. The airplane seemingly held this position all the way from near the cruising altitude until it struck the ground at 1.47 a.m. and 15 seconds in the country of Mali that they were currently flying over. The impact was so heavy that all on board perished in the accident immediately. Ah... Miranda's looking at pictures of what little is left. The airplane struck the ground in the middle of the night, about 160 kilometers away from the next largest city, which is in Mali. Mm. Okay, thinking about what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. The oscillation pattern mm-hmm. usually tells me there's some out of control, something's not going right. Yes. And then the auto thrust is still on, which tells me that something went wrong there. They're not manually adjusting throttles. Right. Their airplane's doing it, which in my brain, I'm sorry, I'm just working it through my brain. Yes, it's okay. They're in wrong configuration. The airplane is not, they're not doing the same thing. You are right in a sense. That's what in my brain. Something happened that has not been mentioned at all. And 
harkens back to things we've covered in the past. Uh, I, and there's I, nothing. I yes. There's it, nothing to indicate what went wrong. This no. Time. To be fair, I kept this the way that it was in the report. And they bring up essentially what happened two separate times like I did. But it's very unnoticeable. Very. Like, if you don't actually know... And that's why this one was kind of complex and mysterious, because most people probably weren't thinking about this kind of situation where they were. Correct. Okay. All right. This investigation was performed by a commission of inquiry under the president of Mali, you know, since... It crashed in Mali. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they had a huge amount of help from the French Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety, a.k.a. the BEA. Yep. French Investigative Authority. Kind of makes sense. Yep. Mostly because there were a bunch of French people on board. Yes. Also, Air Algerie and the, the country of origin for the, the airline that... Used that's, to be French. Yeah, it, yes. well, it's a French territory Used that does not have their... France. Right, that still does not have their own investigating agency. The BEA arrived at the wreckage on July 27th, three days later, and they had their work cut out for them. There are pictures of the wreckage on our website, or rather pictures of how little wreckage there was. Both black boxes were miraculously recovered. The FDR was able to be read out with little to no issue, but the CVR was a little different. Oh, no. Uh, So it looks like a ball of metal. Yeah. Wee bit. And it had to be cut open to reveal a very mangled recorder with torn magnetic tape. Ooh. Somehow, the BEA was able to put it back together, only to find that the recorder had a malfunction unrelated to the accident and was unusable. So normally this is the time I would go over a lot of the physical evidence. But there was barely anything left. So Um, I'd never talk about it. Right. The wreckage, I mean, when they impacted, there was hardly anything large at all. Anything that even remotely resembled an airplane piece. Hmm. I mean, when it impacted, the only things that were basically left were any large chunk of metal, like jack screws and landing gear pieces. Otherwise, anything that was aircraft skin was like coin-sized at best. That's how hard this airplane impacted the ground. And because of the conditions of the terrain that they impacted, which was basically arid desert. If you know anything about arid desert, it's like smacking thick concrete, which means that they only put a one-meter dent into the ground. Yeah. But the whole airplane fit into that one-meter dent. Yep. So that's... Nuts. So the entire analysis came from the flight data recorder. That's what they had. That's what they got, and they figured it out for the most part. Once investigators were able to get their hands on the FDR data, they found something rather strange. There's nothing showing that the crew set an asymmetric engine thrust, but about an hour, 39 minutes, and 35 seconds, the right engine engine power ratio deviated from the left engine and went higher and peaked at 2.0. And less than a minute later, the left engine EPR started acting weird and went higher than the right engine, with the left engine hanging out at about 2.0 and the right engine going down to uh, 1.85. So they have an engine asymmetry then. Let me keep going. Yeah. Investigators decided to recalculate the engine EPR for both engines based on the N1 speed rather than what I assume was the N2 speed. They didn't really specify what previously was used Mm -hmm. and found that both engines EPRs were actually at about 1.6 and were equal. Okay, so there was nothing wrong with the engines then. Mm, I wouldn't say that. But the engine EPR feeds into a bunch of other systems like the auto throttle. Mm. So what effect would that erroneous reading have had on the flight? 
Engines have EPR limits of about 2.0, as it turns out. And as you exceed that value, if engaged, the auto throttle will force the EPR down to the limit value. So the system was reading that the EPR values were high and kept pushing them back down when in reality, they were only at 1.6 and were staying there pretty steadily. So the auto throttle changed. And pushed the engine speed down. Yeah. So why would that bring down the plane, you might ask? To put it in the simplest of terms, at 31,000 feet, or flight level 310, it takes an EPR of 1.8 to maintain level flight. I mean, that makes sense. In the absence of that, the aircraft airspeed starts to drop. Now we have to discuss the concept of flying behind the power curve, which we've really only talked about with Pinnacle Flight 3701, Mm -hmm. the other time a plane just dropped out of the sky from cruising altitude, and that was quite a while ago. Every aircraft manufacturer has calculated the thrust required to maintain a particular speed. The power curve is the point at which your speed is unstable because the thrust force equals the drag force. Going back to physics one in high school, if the sum of the forces is zero and the sum of the forces equals mass times acceleration, this is the point where the plane can just maintain speed because there's no acceleration and no deceleration. Right. Really taking it back to basics. Yep. This magical speed at which you would begin flying behind the power curve in this instance is Mach 0.72, which the crew reached at 1 hour, 41 minutes, and 52 seconds. I don't know if that's saying 141 or if it's saying 1 hour and 41 minutes into the flight. I think it's 1.41 a.m. Okay. Because that's about when all this happened. 1.41 a.m. and 52 seconds, a.k.a. about 2 minutes and 17 seconds after the first EPR measurement error. Even though the engines were capable of producing enough thrust to accelerate, it was never commanded by the throttle because of the erroneous EPR values. I know we're going to get into this, but at one point in the story, it said the auto throttle was shut off and then turned back on. Mm -hmm. I'm not there yet. I know. But did the plane do it or did they do it? They did it. Okay. Why did they turn it back on then? Okay. We'll get get there. I know. But I feel like they knew the problem and then they re-engaged the problem. Kind of. The graph of the thrust required and the thrust available that is on the website, aka figure 51 from the report, shows something else interesting. The aircraft only has so much thrust available. You know, engines can only do so much. And there is a point at which the minimum thrust required to maintain airspeed is greater than the available thrust. And this point is below Mach 0.52. To put it in simpler terms, if the aircraft is flying at Mach 0.52 or lower, the only choice is to descend. That's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. This speed was reached about five seconds after the stall warning. Mm. After the section of the FDR that investigators were able to recalculate the EPR, there was a series of high amplitude oscillations that they weren't able to recalculate, and it seems that it was caused by the crew manually manipulating the engine's throttles and overriding the auto throttle. Right. Then it seems that the engines were surging, based on the FDR data, and then in the last 20 seconds of flight, the EPR values were correct again and matched the recalculated values. What would cause the erroneous EPR measurements, but not happen during the last 20 seconds of flight? Miranda's confused. There are two possibilities. We have talked about this before, and you're going to be very surprised. You're going to smack your head. You, you, yeah. There are two possibilities. One is, quote, an equipment failure in the measuring and transmission system for the EPR, including possible failure of PT7 sensors, end quote. And the other would be a blockage of the P2 total pressure sensors. Ah, So the first was deemed to be unlikely, as it would mean that there was a failure in both engines 55 seconds apart and in systems that were not by any means shared either physically or electrically or electronically or anything. It's the pedostatic system. And then both failures would have to have disappeared in the last 20 seconds of flight. On the other hand, the other failure would make more sense given that the flight was going through a storm cell. (gasps) Ah... 
Note that I mentioned that twice, but very, very subtly. I would never have I know. figured that out. And neither out. did anybody else. If ice had accumulated in the total pressure sensors, a la Air France 447, then the EPR values would be wrong until the ice melted in the last 20 seconds of flight. Okay. When they were falling. I realize that we're not going to have the answer to this, but if that was the case, which obviously they figured out that was the case, right? Why didn't they just hand fly the plane? <laughs> there was no hand flying the airplane. They tried. I guess I just, I don't understand. We'll get there because there's a complex set of physics that's happening here. But how could that have happened if the crew was using the engine anti-ice systems? Let's mm. confirm that they indeed had it on. The FDR doesn't record if it's on or not. Oh, well, Woo-hoo! that's not helpful. And there's like no wreckage to figure out if the switch is turned. There's no way. Nope. Nope. So investigators had to find out the hard way. Tests? So the physics, really, a lot of physics. I feel so bad for the <laughs> investigators. I mean, it is their job, though. You're basically just looking at data. You got nothing else. Yikes. The engine and airframe anti-ice system, which, you know, melts ice. Yeah. Uses hot air from the engine, which reduces the available thrust and therefore reduces the EPR limit. So the EPR limit will be different depending on if the anti-ice system is on or not. Can one side be on and the other not? No, not as no. far as I know. No, probably not. I feel like the, it shouldn't be, but no. we're talking... Most, yeah, most systems are solely one. We're talking about that EPR limit that the auto throttle was using. It doesn't want the EPR to go above yeah. 2.0, right? And it's that limit, that value is different depending on if the anti-ice is on or not. So investigators took the graph we looked at earlier, showing the EPR and its weird fluctuations, and overlaid the EPR limit during cruise flight with and without anti-icing on. It's Oops. off. Oh, well, that would be a problem. Yeah, turns out. Yep. However, because of lack of CVR data, it is impossible to tell if the non-activation of the anti-icing was due to an oversight or if it was an intentional decision because prior to entering the storm, the temperature showed that they didn't need to turn it on. I mean, if they didn't think they needed to turn it on, I guess that would make sense. Changes in the heading caused the flight to pass along the western edge of the convective storm, which is where icing would occur. Meteorologists input that in this part of the storm, there wouldn't have been any supercooled water. So the airframe itself probably didn't have icing, especially on the windshield. You know, the thing that would tell the pilots to turn on anti-icing? Yeah. They would have no idea that there's icing in the engines. Hmm. Zero. Now another phenomenon that contributed to this crash. We've discussed stalls before. Yes. Usually during takeoff and landing. Right. This stall was at cruising altitude, and the physics are a little bit different. You would think that it's really difficult to stall at cruise because you've got some serious speed going, but that's not necessarily the case. We've discussed that it's the shape of the wing that creates lift. There's more pressure under the wing than on top, which means that there's lift as air flows over and under the wing. We have also discussed that flying at too steep of a pitch reduces airflow over the wing, causing a stall. It turns out that when you're flying at a higher Mach... The angle of attack that causes a stall is lower than when you're flying at a low Mach or lower airspeed. This is because you develop these increasingly intense vibrations known as buffets. Yes. Mm -hmm. We'll revisit that in a second. Because of the low engine power that was unnoticeable via instruments, the airspeed began to drop from 278 knots to 213 knots. And it seems like the crew didn't react. Right. Quote, it is likely that the crew workload involved in managing the circumvention of the convective weather and various attempts at establishing contact with the Niami Air Control Center contributed to the lack of timely response to the decrease in speed, despite the visual and auditory information aimed at warning the crew. The review of previous events showed that other MD-80 crews had suffered significant losses at speed at altitude without detecting them. End quote. 
Once the flight reached 210 knots, two changes in engine RPM were recorded by the throttle levers and were consistent with the, quote, EPR erratic or fixed, end quote, procedure, which says to advance and pull back the throttles to see if there was a change on the instruments. But this is not all that the crew could have done. They should have noticed at this point the approach to a stall. At 203 knots, there would have started to be displays saying low speed or speed low, and investigators could not explain the lack of reaction at this point, other than that the crew at this time was handling radio messages and making changes to the throttle, and the autopilot was still engaged. This is also the point at which buffeting would have started, but without the CVR, we can't say if the crew noticed it, identified it, or they might have just considered it to be turbulence. They are on the edge of a storm. At 200 knots, the stick shaker activated, followed by the stall warning. Miranda, what do you do in a stall? You, you push down. Correct. To gain yes. your speed. That is right. one thing. Two, you apply maximum thrust, especially when yes. you altitude to you, lose. You need to get thrust back in order to, right. even if you do that, if you keep, if you don't do anything to the engines, it's just going to go into a stall again. Right. Three, you disconnect the autopilot and the auto throttle. Yeah, that's what I'm confused about. None of these happened. But why? We don't know. And nobody ever will. We have no we idea. don't know what was going on in the cockpit. Yeah, that's the thing I, I I don't that that's the thing I keep bringing up that I don't get. I'm like, why is the auto throttle still on? Why is the autopilot still on? Why aren't they trying to fix the stall? They have so much time right. to fix it. Why don't they fix it? There's a suspicion I'll get to about that in a second. So when it comes to physics in the situation they're in specifically, an airplane that's flying at cruising altitude is designed to fly at that cruising altitude for a very specific reason. It's right in between their overspeed and their stall at that altitude. Because air density is so much lower up at that altitude, those the distance between their overspeed and their stall is very, very, very narrow. Okay. Extremely narrow. So if the airplane starts to falter from its normal cruising speed at all, the airplane does not react well because it's not designed to be flying at those speeds. So what happened is they encountered the buffet because they encountered the stall because the throttle was rolled all the way back right. at cruising altitude. So it suddenly got an angle of attack that... Basically, at a low altitude would be like pointing the nose straight up and trying right. to fly in a straight line. Yeah. So up there, it's the equivalent of that because of the density altitude. So the airplane starts falling. Right. Well, as soon as it started falling, because the throttle was never increased, the airplane did did basically go straight nose down. In all of that time, what they did say is that the controls were pulled all the way back to pitch nose up and turned all the way right. I'll get to that in a second. Yes. The physics here just basically, they can't recover. In order to maintain altitude, the autopilot maintained a continuous nose up movement so that the angle of attack was over 24 degrees with 13 degrees being the stall angle. So the nose up at first was the autopilot. Yeah, well, and that Mm -hmm. is messed up. Investigators were really upset by the fact that the autopilot can't be told you're in a stall and stop doing that. I thought that if the stall warning activated, the autopilot would automatically... On some airplanes, Not on the MD-80. Not on the MD-80. Well, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) These are old airplanes, and there's only a handful of them left in passenger And I I realize that, because now there's, like, things that will actually pitch the airplane down. The MCAS. Yep. So that doesn't happen. I realize that MD-80s are in general, pretty old airplanes. So they probably didn't have that yet. Nope. So this is the point when the engines began to surge because they weren't getting enough air because of the steep angle of attack Mm -hmm. and were effectively choking on fuel, which explodes out the back. Oh, good Lord. 
Yep. It's like a backfire. Yeah. We would uh we discussed this before. Refer to I don't even know which episodes. Yeah, I don't know either. There's a lot actually. (laughs) That got the crew's attention because the engines were brought down to almost idle. Mind you, the crew had not reacted to the stick shaker for 25 seconds. Yeah, that's a little concerning too. That is by far and away the most concerning piece. Because like that's that's the thing that tells you, hey, yo, uh, hello, figure it out, hello. That is the most concerning piece to me and the investigative body. The speed is now 162 knots, and the plane is banking to the left, and the pitch is decreasing. The crew rolled right to be wings level, right, but also pulled up and continued pulling up until impact. Okay, now we come to a topic we've talked about the last few episodes. I would like the record to show that this is your, you listeners, this, this is your fault. I didn't plan this. We never plan these. You guys are the ones who give us our well, schedules. And the funny part is, is that it's not even the same person. Nope. I know. What are the odds? And we moved stuff around, too. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. To help determine the state of mind of the crew, given the absence of the CBR, investigators looked into the crew's schedule for the days leading up to the accident. Miranda knows where I'm going. To be clear, this crew was employed by Swift Air, not Air Algerie. Their home base, per their contract, was in Madrid, accordingly, and all of their crew planning and rest times were the responsibility of Swift Air. They had a limitation on duty period of 60 hours in a seven calendar day span. The crew had five days of rest, then seven day duty period of July 10th through the 16th, and then followed by another five rest days. But during that seven day period, they far exceeded 60 hours. They had already reached 66 hours by day six and 77 hours by day seven. So why are they even flying then? Because they had a five day rest period. That doesn't matter. If the max is 60 hours, you can't go over your hours. Correct. But they're also not in their country of operation. Nope. Investigators acknowledge that it is possible for the crew to neutralize the effect of fatigue during those five rest days, but they don't have any information of what the crew members did during the five days. So it's hard to say for sure if they were properly using that time to recuperate. We're partying hard. Furthermore, the crew didn't have rest time at home in Madrid for a whole month leading up to the accident. All of their rest time was taken in Algiers despite a Spanish ministerial circular requiring eight days of rest at home base a month. So there is the possibility of fatigue, but no proof one way or the other. But what's that other kind of fatigue we've talked a lot about recently? The circadian low? Yep. Yeah. The window of circadian low. The time of day where the body is naturally going to have the lowest physiological capability. Miranda, do you remember what time frame that was? Yeah, it was between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Do you know what time this crash happened in Algiers time, which their bodies were acclimated to? Pretty close to 2 a.m. After. 2.47 a.m. It's 2.47 a.m. Algiers time because this... Was All these times where they where the accident actually occurred was in UTC time. Okay. This is UTC plus one where they're used to being. But again, without the CBR, there's no way to know for sure if fatigue was a factor. So, Of course it was a factor. You'll note when we read the everything later that they don't say that fatigue was a factor because they can't prove it. Correct. Yes, but come on. I know. Yep. With the crew rest times thing. What is wrong with these companies? This is 2014 for Christ's sake. What is mm-hmm. wrong with that? Haven't we figured this out by now? Put it this way. I'm not going to say, I, I don't know if that sketchy is the right word, but um, maybe a little bit shady operation happening in countries it's where regulations. It seems like that, yeah. In countries where regulations are probably far less strict and nobody's watching. Yeah, but I mean, if I was the crew, mm-hmm. I'm not. Mm-hmm. But if I was, yep. if you're scheduled a 60-hour work week, mm-hmm. 
And you know, you are only supposed to work a 60-hour working right. week. My ass isn't working over 60 hours. And I agree. But depending on what their pay is, because of the situation they've been thrown in, they might have considered themselves as hitting the piloting jackpot by getting X amount of hours at whatever their pay rate is. They're going to walk away with X amount of many thousands of dollars. <laughs> I hate it. Basically. That shouldn't be a factor. I agree. I realize money drives everything, and that's the sucky part, but- it's really, 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 really annoying having to constantly talk about how these companies don't understand crew rest time. Right. And because crews, we've talked about crews that don't use their rest time properly. Yep. I don't care how many days off they had. You can't go over the 60 hours. That's the whole point. Right. And if they had survived or this hadn't happened, who knows if they went back to Spain, they checked hours, they could have gotten in trouble. I mean, the, but, 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 but. I know. Yep. Come on, people. It's not that hard. Normal, I I mean, I'm talking U.S. standards here, right? But normal Mm -hmm. Americans, right? We have a 40-hour work week. Some of us work extra hours. My boyfriend, for instance, works extra hours. I work extra hours. For overtime Mm -hmm. pay. Right. And overtime pay is nice. It is, but there's a reason you get overtime pay. Right. And I also don't crash planes if I go into overtime. Right. Correct. Exactly. So that's why they have to have strict regulations. On exactly. That. It's why you don't get overtime, but also 60 hours is more than the average work week. Right. They had hit 77 hours by the end of this seven day period. Nope. Nope. That's nope, an nope. average of 11 hours a day. Right. Nope. And who knows what their pay rate was? I mean, I'm not even going to try to speculate because I have absolutely no idea. But the reality is, is that they probably were thrown into this situation because they weren't making a whole lot of money per hour. But by flying a lot of hours, they were making a lot of money. So that's all I got. Let's take a break. We'll talk a little bit more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so a lot of strange things obviously had to have happened for this airplane to have fallen from the sky, cruising altitude, aka the sky. Yes, <laughs> but specifically cruising altitude in the sky because that is a very different situation, and for it to happen in the middle of the night over Africa. So one of the things we touched on briefly was that there wasn't super cooled water. Water. But there were water water crystals. Ice crystals. Yes, ice crystals specifically. Because within a matter of minutes, they went from an outside temperature of plus 5 degrees Celsius to minus 5 degrees Celsius. That matters. Turns out. That matters a lot. And that happened as soon as they entered the low pressure system that is the thunderstorm. Or the convective system. Right. Which just makes me think of a convective oven. (laughs) Yeah. Convection, by the way, is just like a rotating air. Air. Yep. Either vertically or horizontally. Yeah. Yep. Depends on air temperature. As it rises, it goes up and then it right. falls and then it rises and it falls. Right. And one of the dangerous things that happens with thunderstorms, we've not really talked about this, and this is why I wanted to spend a small amount of time actually talking about this, is we've talked about it before, but the anvil mm-hmm. on thunderstorms. 
are particularly dangerous, and this is a very well-known thing to most pilots in aviation, that if you can see the anvil, you want to be as far away from that thing as you possibly can be. That means even if you think, oh, but the anvil's up at 30,000 feet and I am at 4,000 feet, you still don't want to be under that anvil. Right. And it literally looks like an anvil. It really does. The anvil is literally the part that juts out from the top, the flat top of the thunderstorm. Yeah. That juts out away from where the thundercloud actually is. Mm -hmm. That anvil is unbelievably dangerous all the way to the ground. Because that is where most of the convective current is. is. So this is really dangerous for pilots. And that's part of what actually happened here. And they talked about it a little bit here and there. But they flew underneath the anvil in doing their little adjustments in heading. They ended up flying underneath the anvil, which is how they ended up in a really heavy convective current. And how they ended up getting ice crystals. In the pedostatic system. In the pedostatic system. So... Just wanted to touch on that because that is a thing. That is also part of what made it really unstable for them at altitude. So that was also a thing. Now, let's do some findings and wrecks. There were a lot of findings, but this was one of those reports where they really just retold the story. Ah. Most of the findings. So I picked up the ones that weren't doing that, or at least mostly not doing that. They found that the meteorological situation was what could be expected at the time of year in the intertropical convergence zone. Fancy. In that region. Right, in that region. I thought that was interesting because it was like, they're calling it out and saying, this is the weather that should have been expected. They should have known better. They fly that area all the time. Right, so why do they fly into it? They should have been a lot more cognizant of weather. Well, and they have a radar on board, right? I mean, this airplane isn't so whole. It doesn't have one? Like It probably had some form of one, yes, but... I would say they weren't using it to their advantage, for uh, one. Oh, really? And two, it definitely wasn't... that. It was like they didn't do any planning with the weather at all. Hmm. It was just kind of there, and now they were like, oh, I guess we're going to deal with this now. I don't know if it's because part of that was maybe the fatigue, so they oh, just weren't putting as maybe. much time into planning. Yeah. Or part of that was, oh, we've been flying all around this area, and it's mostly uh, clear. Overconfidence. It's yeah. mostly clear most of the time. So we don't have to deal with this kind of stuff. They didn't even think about planning weather, and then it turned out really bad for them. But that part we'll never know. Right, exactly. That part we'll never know. They found that a CVR malfunction that preceded the event flight prevented it from producing a usable recording of the noises and conversations in the cockpit. (sighs) The crew could not detect this malfunction during the pre-flight test. The malfunction occurred after the last maintenance action where it could have been detected. So unfortunately... This is one of those things where they really chalked it up to, that was unavoidable. Yeah. Like, that is nobody's fault, and it was unavoidable. Because the last maintenance interval, the fault didn't exist. Yeah, and so After they that, can't... the fault existed, but in doing the tests of the CVR, basically it's a pass-fail test. Yes, it's operating. It's just not operating correctly. Right. Because you can't take it out and check the recording every time. Right. So the crew had no idea that it actually wasn't working properly. So that was another piece of this. He found that during the climb to flight level 310, the crew made some heading changes to avoid cloudy areas, which led it to fly on the edge of a convective cloud system. Like we said, basically right at the anvil on the west end. They found that the route chosen led 
them to flying in an area where the presence of ice crystals was likely. So Not great. That's one of those things that they definitely could have planned for and avoided. Yeah, not great. Nope. Which, by the way, a lot of modern, and they don't bring this up at all, but a lot of modern air traffic control systems will even help air traffic controllers keep airplanes away from those areas when the pilots can't do it themselves. In this situation, I would say that wasn't even a thing. Hmm. Not even considered. So, because they don't talk about the air traffic control piece of this at all. They found that the anti-icing system had not been activated during the airplane climb and cruise phases, during which the autothrottle was in the mock ATL mode. They found that the EPR values of the right engine, then the left engine, became erroneous, probably following the obstruction of the PT2 pressure sensors by ice crystals. Yep. Yes. Pretty self-explanatory. They found that these erroneous EPR values caused the autothrottle to limit the thrust produced by the engines to a level lower than the thrust required to maintain flight level 310. They found that both engines suffered a surge due to the airplane's high angle of attack. Just can't get air in. Yeah. They found that the autopilot disengaged about 22 seconds after the triggering of the stall warning. The airplane angle of attack had then reached approximately 25 degrees. There was no apparent crew action between the stall warning activation and the autopilot disconnection. So again, they weren't doing anything about the stall warning. Which baffles me. It, and it baffles investigators. It, it bothers me. They they then proceeded to basically spend another few findings talking about just this, but then they also bring it up in the recommendations a lot. So we will touch on that. <laughs> I'm not going to do all of them. It's one of those things where you have to cover your bases. Like, we don't know for sure. Right. But do it anyway. Right. So in talking about that, here's where you might get a little mad. Okay. They found that the crew had not received any training relating to approach to stall and recovery from it since joining Swift Air. The investigation could not determine how far back their last training on these points took place. Is that legal? So they didn't even have technically stall training on the MD-80 from any so records So no wonder they, they didn't do anything. They had no idea what was going on. Yeah, I figured I might make you a little mad. This is why they spent a lot of time talking about this, because ultimately, yes, this probably could have been recoverable if they had noticed much earlier. They just didn't do anything about it until they were in a full-on stall. And then aerodynamically, the airplane is now accelerating toward the ground, and when you're at a very high rate of speed, the amount of pressure that's put on the surfaces of the aircraft, sometimes it's too much for the airplane to actually be able to react in a reasonable amount of time. You think about it, you know, for example, in your car, when you're taking a turn at 10 miles per hour, you, you can feel you feel the forces. And, you know, when you're turning at a faster speed, you feel yourself start to lose it. Right. Exactly. So in this case, that's because when you, for example, when you turn in your car and you turn at 10 miles per hour onto a little side street, you're making a 90 degree turn. You can do that in pretty much the width of the car. But when you do it at highway speed, say 65, 75 miles an hour, that 90 degree turn is now going to take you almost exponentially longer. It is exponentially because the acceleration of a turn is proportional to your velocity squared over the radius of the turn. Look go. at me bringing back physics. <laughs> <laughs> So the same basic physics apply when you put the airplane into a dive and now it has 
a lot of speed going straight toward the ground, which is a lot of forces the airplane now has to counteract, and a lot of speed at little distance in reality. Because it's going to take them in the air quite a few miles to make a 90-degree right turn at this speed. But at this speed going toward the ground, they only have how many miles? Maybe four? Five miles at most downward? Because this probably happened closer to 28,000 feet, I guess. So six miles, six miles maybe to recover? 5.3. 5.3 miles. There you go. So they have 5.3 miles basically to try to recover this. And it's not possible. It was basically not possible at that point. They were putting full input in the opposite direction of what the airplane was doing. And they did say that it was the airplane when it impacted was at less of a nose pitch down and less of a left roll, but it was still in a left roll and still nose down. Well, because as once you're diving, you are picking up airspeed. There's the potential for a lift. Right. If you have enough time right. and you have the skill. Right. The thing is, is how you gain that lift is very important. If the airplane is pointed straight down. And you're inverted. And you're inverted. It essentially impairs your ability to do so. If you do it where the nose pitches down, say, 15, 20 degrees and stays level, then yes, you can recover from that because you have a lot of force you can go up. But you didn't in this case. They didn't have any of that. They were not set up for success. Not at all. So that's all of the findings I'm covering out of the like 40, I think there actually were. It's time to do the causes. Yeah, causes. Buckle up. I'm going to be here a minute. The aeroplane speed piloted by the auto throttle decreased due to obstruction of the pressure sensors located on the engine nose cones, probably caused by ice crystals. The autopilot then gradually increased the angle of attack to maintain altitude until the aeroplane stalled. The stall was not recovered. The aeroplane retained a pitch down attitude and left bank down to the ground while the control surfaces remained mainly deflected pitch up and in the direction of a bank to the right. The aeroplane hit the ground at high speed. The accident was the result of a combination of the following events. The non-activation of the engine anti-icing systems. Which obviously is like probably the most important piece here. Could have been completely avoided. The obstruction of the P2 pressure sensors, probably by ice crystals, generating erroneous EPR values that caused the auto throttle to limit the thrust produced by the engines to a level below that required to maintain the aeroplane at flight level 310. The crew's late reaction to the decrease in speed and to the erroneous EPR values possibly linked to the workload associated with avoiding the convective zone and communication difficulties with air traffic control. The crew's lack of reaction to the appearance of buffet, the stick shaker, and the stall warning. The lack of appropriate inputs on the flight controls to recover from a stall situation. These events could be explained by a combination of the following factors. The FCOM procedure relating to the activation of the anti-icing systems that was not adapted to PT2 pressure sensor obstruction by ice crystals. Insufficient information for operators on the consequences of a blockage of the PT2 pressure sensor by icing. The stick shaker and stall warning triggering logic that led these devices to be triggered belatedly in relation to the aeroplane stalling cruise. The autopilot logic that enables it to continue to give pitch up commands beyond the stall angle, thereby aggravating the stall situation and increasing the crew's difficulties in recovery. The absence of a usable CVR recording limited the possibility of analyzing the crew's behavior during the flight. Specifically, it was not possible to study CRM or crew resource management aspects or to evaluate the possible contribution of the employment context and the experience of the crew members. So I agree with every bit of that. 
And there is one thing I have to say about the whole situation in regards to, okay, they didn't know how to handle a stall. They weren't trained for it. If they weren't trained to do that, how in the world are they expected to also recognize when their pedostatic system is being blocked? Yeah. The investigators actually specifically said that there wasn't really a whole lot in the cockpit to indicate... Correct. ...that it was blocked. But... Here's the one thing that we know they definitely missed and could have been a sign. The fact that they went from that 5 degrees Celsius to negative 5 degrees Celsius in basically a couple of minutes. Yeah. That should have been a sign that they entered an area that was dangerous. Yeah. Because that doesn't happen except when you're in very dangerous weather situations. How diligently do crews check their thermometer? You know, probably not that much unless they know they're flying into a weather situation and they have planned for it. This is something that's definitely useful, but I think that's why, like, they weren't relying on it. They weren't expecting to have this situation. And my guess is, is that they never looked at that temperature reading. Mm. So they never knew that it was icing. I know you probably don't know where it is on the MD-80, but where is it normally? The little, the... Temperature display? Yeah. It's more than likely, depending on the configuration of this MD-80, because I don't know, but if this MD-80 had any form of electronic displays, which most did in 2014, even a lot of the secondhand MD-80s, which, by the way, this one changed hands six or seven times since it was built, it is usually on one of those electronic displays. If not that, then there's usually an analog gauge. Okay. That can tell you temp. I just popped into my head. I think we already talked about it, but if they mm-hmm. had turned it on in flight... They never would have had this issue. If they had realized that that was what was going on. Yeah. That's why I'm saying if they had looked at the temperature, they probably would have turned on the anti-ice, and then the situation never would have been a thing. But they didn't even recognize the signs that they had icing on the pedostatic tube. Yeah. So, that's a whole situation, too. Recommendations. Again, they actually had quite a few of these, so I'm definitely not going to do all the recommendations, but I'm going to do some of the ones that I felt were pretty important. So they actually brought up some recommendations from another accident or another incident, I should say. This one's actually uh, accident on 16th of August, 2005 of a DC-982 or an MD-82, very similar airplane, operated by West Caribbean Airways. The investigation recalls that the Venezuelan authorities at the end of the safety investigation had recommended that the aviation authorities require the inclusion of flight crew training for recovery from high-altitude stalls. This is justified on the grounds that the simulator training low-altitude stalls are induced, from which the aircraft can recover more quickly, because it can increase power in order to maintain altitude, whereas at high altitudes, the behavior of aircraft is different, calling for more precise maneuvers in terms of time of execution. Which is very true. This airplane basically ended up in a very similar situation to our Aeroflot accident that we talked about, where the airplane was suddenly inverted... And pointing nose down, and it happens fast from there. Fast. They also recommend that in those countries in which there are air operators certified to operate MD-80 series aircraft, they increase and optimize the requirements in the flight crew programs in the presence of buffeting at high altitudes, and also those with regard to the various configuration modes for the auto throttle system, the NTI system, and the monitoring of altitude and speed and their relation to aircraft power status. Yes. Kind of self-explanatory in a way. Yeah. Know what the power curve is. Right. Training the crews to understand how 
The airplane is flying in re- relation to the power curve. Are you ready for another incident? In regards to the serious incident on the 4th of June 2002 to the DC-982 or the MD-82 operated by Spirit Airlines. Oh. Wait, back up. Spirit what? Yep. They used to have MD-82s. Oh, oh aren't they an Airbus-only fleet right yeah, now? Yeah, they are now. But I'll show you. Yeah, why MD-82s. would they keep using them now? Yeah. I'll show you their MD-82s from the past. They had uh, like this red, white, and blue paint scheme, and that was the early days of Spirit. Very different airline back then. Recommended the FAA issue the Flight Standards Information Bulletin to principal operations inspectors to alert all affected air carrier flight crews about the icing situation encountered by Spirit Airlines Flight 970 and to emphasize the need to maintain vigilance for the signs of high-altitude icing conditions the effect these conditions can have on airplane and engine performance, and the need for the appropriate use of the engine anti-ice system. Can you tell that was written by the NTSB? Yes. (laughs) Obviously, they're taking portions of other reports. reports. I mean, they don't have anything to work off of otherwise. Right. In terms of the accident on 1st of June 2009, the Airbus A330-200 operated by Air France, A.K.A. Air France 447. Yep. They had recommended that the ICAO ensure the implementation of SAR, coordination plans for regional protocols covering all of the maritime or remote areas for which international coordination would be required for the application of SAR procedures, including the South Atlantic. But that's the only actual recommendation they really brought up in terms of Air France 447. So it was like, I mean, to me, it just seems silly to even bring that one up when in reality, there's a lot more you could have taken from Air France 447. Yeah. The reason they touched on the other two, though, were specifically were because it was they were MD-80 accidents. Which yes. The MD-80s got problems. Not necessarily. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. It was just an older airplane with older systems. But it is more prone to buffeting. Yes. Specifically, and stalls. Yes. Okay. Separately. Interim recommendations. They recommended that the FAA is a primary certification authority, or if not, the EASA, require a modification to the MD-80 type flight manual to... One, draw crew's attention to the risks linked to possible icing of the PT2's pressure sensor at cruise altitude, including where there are no visible signs of icing, specifically when the engine anti-ice system is not activated. And two, provide them with the means to rapidly detect an erroneous EPR indication and to remedy it. Yeah, understand what it looks like and how to fix it. Right. Or possibilities why it's doing that. Right. Auto throttle's at full, but the engines are fluctuating a little bit and we have no speed. Something is wrong. I mean, <laughs> investigators were able to calculate the EPR using a different means. Have the system do that as well and compare the two values. If it's out of tolerance, then something's wrong. Right. And on modern airplanes, they do. They have those calculations basically built into the computers where it says, hey. I would be really concerned if they didn't yeah, at this point in history. All, all modern airplanes at this point have some form of that where it says, hey, something is very wrong with the auto throttle system. This these calculations are not correct. The engines are not performing the way that the auto throttle is telling them to. So that is a whole thing. Wait, I have a question. Yep. That just popped into my head. Do you have to constantly monitor the engine levers if the auto throttle isn't on? If the auto throttle is not on, I mean, you should be manually controlling power and monitoring power the whole time. I mean, you should be monitoring speed all the time anyways. Yes. But in that case, it is your job to also set speed all the time. Okay. So that in in a situation where the auto throttle is not on. It's like having cruise on on your car. Yeah. You, you're constantly having to put your foot on the pedal and the brake, pedal on the brake, on the pedal, brake. That's the same situation here. They constantly have to have their hand basically on the throttle to adjust. Okay. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. But with the auto throttle on, they don't have to do any of that. In terms of the anti-icing protection systems, here we go. 
They recommend that the FAA ask the manufacturer to study the feasibility of installing of a permanent anti-ice system for the PT-2 sensors, independent of any activation by the crew of existing anti-icing systems for the engines or the airframe. Why is it not driven by the thermometer? That. So... it's I could program that. Yes. If, I, if temperature is less than zero degrees Celsius, anti-ice equals one or on. Right. Like, that's... I agree with that, but more so than that, I almost agree with them. Why isn't it just on all the time? Because it takes, it uses the hot air bleed from the engines, thereby limiting their EPR limits. Right. Decreasing their EPR limits. Yes. So I understand why you wouldn't want it on all the time, solely for that reason. If you don't need it to be on, why limit your engines that way? Sure. But I would argue that this is such a safety critical item that can change in an instant when you're I, flying at high rates of speed. I hesitate to use this analogy, but it's almost like the fact that the AC in your car draws mm-hmm. power away from your engine. Yes. And when, say you have like a really short merge lane in front of you. Right. Miranda and I are both prone to doing this where we just turn off the AC for like 20 seconds just sure. to get up to highway speed. Sure. So I get that. I would almost, almost equate it to the same yeah. thing. Sure. But in it, situations, I mean... The reality is that airplanes can generate a lot of power these days, especially with a lot of the modern engines. They're really good at producing these kinds of power. And pitot tubes are pretty small. It's not going to take a whole lot of power for them to produce Yeah, but it's not just the pitot tubes. Right. I mean, I guess if you want to have a fully independent heating system. And that's kind of what they're saying is keep the pitot-static system independent from everything else. And and have it always be heated. Heated all the time. I think it's just easier to do literally that little programming thing I just said. If temperature Mm -hmm. is below this, turn it on. You're not having to change infrastructure. You're not like you just insert a bit of code. Right. But then it's still reliant on that code working and the sensor not being bad. There's duplicates of these sensors. Yes, I agree. Also, so, train the crew. Like, yes. Anyway, I mean, obviously, the training piece. We're about to touch on that, but the training piece is still, to me, the more important thing here. So, this is the last recommendation I'm going to do. Which they have, a, they have a bunch more, but they're they're really repetitive. So, I'm touching on this. This is in terms of the stall. I recommend that the FAA require that the manufacturer integrate into the documentation provided to operators the specific feature of a stall in crews on MD-80-type aeroplanes linked to the late appearance of Buffett, of the stick shaker, and of the stall warning, and with the non-automatic disengagement of the autopilot after the stall warning. All of that's really important. I think along with that piece, because, I mean, they do go into, like, how they should be requiring training, this and that, but... They're kind of the reason they put that one first in the stall section is because they're saying the manufacturer, had they had all this information in the operation manual of the aircraft and required that to basically be a training piece, the operator, I'm not going to say would have trained, but may have been more likely to have trained on this, noting that this was something of significance. I'm surprised it wasn't included. Right. Especially since, yes, I do agree, it is... The autopilot was a much more rudimentary autopilot. It didn't do a lot of calculations, so it didn't have any kind of programming to tell it, hey, the angle of attack is insane. and Stop lifting the nose. Yeah, and unmanageable. Instead, it just maintained that, whereas a lot of modern autopilots, yeah, they can do those calculations. They can say it limits it to that 
angle of attack. Beyond that, it's just going to disengage itself. Yeah, that's what I, th- that's the thing that I said earlier. Like, why didn't it just stop right. working when the plane was in a stall? Cause, right, because it's just too rudimentary. It it's, just couldn't do that. It, the plane is old, is yeah. the answer to that. Essentially, yes. The autopilot's old. So it just couldn't do that. It just couldn't. So, I mean, that's that whole piece. They they should train on it, of course, but also the manufacturer, you know, should have bits about, hey, this airplane cannot turn the autopilot off in case of a high angle of attack, situations like that. But, I mean, all of that to say the MD-80, not a very common airplane for commercial operations, especially in the United States. They are now all retired as of 2020. So there are operators around the world that still fly the MD-80. Do any cargo carriers in the U.S. still fly it? No, not really. They're not common cargo airplanes, though there are some companies that have tried recently to convert them and try to get companies to buy them, but they're not interested because now Boeing has the 737NG conversions and Airbus is starting to do conversions on the A321. So much better airplanes for that there is in the same class. The the Boeing and Airbus airplanes are easier to control than the MD-80s were because That's, of the configuration of the MD-80s. Yes. And that's a big part of it. And they're just newer. They're just better. They're better for their class. They're better weight and balance performance. There's more available pilots. There's way more available pilots. Although, you know, there's still a lot of MD-80 pilots out there. But there's still there's still a lot of MD-80s. You'd be surprised. There's still a lot of MD-80s and MD-90s that are operating around the world. Not a, like nowhere near as many as there were before since the U.S. operated the majority of them. Yeah. But there's still quite a few. However, that said, like a lot of those are very modern now. They have updated the cockpits to be full glass in most of them. And that's why like this is not as much of an issue anymore because they are just better. They're modern. They're designed to actually handle these kinds of situations the same way that a modern 737 or A320 would. So there you go. That's it. That was Air Algerie 5017. Thank you so much for listening as always. Thank you to all our patrons. You guys are amazing. I Again, we like to thank you at the end of every episode because you support us so much. If you want to look into being a patron, all that information is on the website. And or you can log into Patreon and find us. We pull right up when you look up Hard Landings or Hard Landings Podcast. Also, if you have to leave for whatever reason uh, from Patreon, please don't feel bad. We get it. Financial situations change. Sometimes you guys come in for a month you binge all the stuff you want to binge and then you leave i don't blame you for perfectly fine not a bit i did that for a long time with a a certain podcast sure so if any if you've ever been a patron of ours thank you also don't feel bad if you're a low level patron because you're a patron like you're still supporting us we really do appreciate it doesn't matter how much you contribute we really do appreciate it which brings me to the point of we do have a $2 tier. You do get stuff for that $2 tier. Is it as much as our other tiers? No, but you still get stuff. So there you go. If you have any questions about that, please let us know. Patrons, if you have stuff you want to have us put on the Patreon, yeah, can always you know send us a message. And if know. you're not on Patreon, but there's something that you would suggest that might like sway you into doing it. Let, Let us, us know, know because we'll take some of the recommendations too. I mean, we're interested to see what you guys want out of this. Like, we that's are the whole out thing. of ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole <laughs> on thing. What to contribute? So we've thrown a lot at it. Now it's your turn. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sending stories, even though they were all very, very, very last minute. Uh, <laughs> I, I do really appreciate it, though. We got some. Definitely some new people and some interesting Yes, and thank you. Stuff going we on, so. we appreciate it so much because let me tell you, 
I mean, we love David. Thank you, David. But when other people contribute too, it shows us that not just David listens to <laughs> listener story. I mean, yeah. I mean, David's amazing and awesome. Thank you, David. You're you're the one who actually makes it so entertaining. So keep contributing. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's already sent three stories for this. I think so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so again, thank you for sending stories. Again, if you want to check out the newsletter, double check your spelling on the newsletter. Yes, I because saw Because someone spelled Yahoo wrong and it got sent back. And I, I can fix it on the back end, fortunately. Yes. But please, 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 please double check your spelling before you submit. I do appreciate those of you who do want to get it and I and you know sign up for it because I'm the one who does it and I put a lot of work into that. It is all manually done. That yes. really is a manually done newsletter. Also, please be kind because I am a horrible grammar speller, etc. <laughs> and I might get stuff wrong, so I'm sorry. I try to read through everything, but sometimes my brain doesn't catch it. So No, nah, I get it. You know. I get it. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Sorry for the little ramble at the end there. We appreciate all of you listening. Honestly, our listenership goes up pretty much every week, so we do appreciate it. Make sure you give us a rating, depending on what platform you're using. Have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.